Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Uh, good afternoon to everyone. Welcome to another edition of FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. Uh, my name is Vasilis Dusas. I'm the Senior International Relations Policy Advisor at FEPS. And I'm very happy to welcome to the program Andrew Small, uh, who's a Senior Transatlantic Fellow with GMF's Asia program, which he established in 2006. His research focuses on a lot of China-related issues, U.S.-China relations, Europe-China relations, Chinese policy in South Asia, and broader developments in China's foreign and economic policy. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Vasilis. Delighted to be able to join you. Now, as you might have guessed, today's episode focuses on China. I should also say the focus will also be on how the transatlantic perspectives vis-a-vis Beijing are evolving. And there's certainly an abundance of topic where topics we can discuss around China, from geopolitics, tech, trade, to more ideological matters. But Andrew, before delving more into some of these issues, uh, I thought it'd be very interesting to start with where China finds itself right now. I mean, the last couple of years, uh, we've seen a remarkable range of developments uh, that give the impression that this has been a very dense, politically and geopolitically speaking, period. For, for Beijing. We had the pandemic, we had China's handling of the pandemic and of its relationships with some key partners and actors at the international level. We had mask diplomacy, we had a wolf warrior diplomacy, we have Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and so on. And at the same time, the Communist Party of China is now celebrating its centenary since its founding, which serves as a very nice opportunity to reflect on the past, but also readjust looking at the future. So I'm wondering if you can share with us your thoughts as to where you think China finds itself, the moment that China finds itself in right now, under the stewardship of uh, President Xi. So I think it is a really interesting juncture to to reflect on this. And, And I think the party is a good prism through which to look at these questions as well, because I think you can see some common threads that really run through what's going on domestically, internationally, and in terms of Xi's management of the Chinese Communist Party itself. And a lot of it comes down to the break that we've seen from the traditions that were set in place by Deng Xiaoping. We've been used to, for some time, uh, in the aftermath of Mao's uh, death, the reform and opening process, and everything we've seen in in China's kind of takeoff as an economic power, um, a set of principles that have really guided China uh, in its domestic politics, in its international relations, in ways that even with the changeovers in leadership, party secretaries and different developments there, there are some things that we'd we'd grown accustomed to about the kind of consensus-based leadership model, uh, the a model that continued to put economics at the forefront in, in, in all sorts of ways under Deng Xiaoping, and this kind of hide your brightness, bide your time approach, um, which meant that China didn't take certain risks, didn't stick its neck out too much, didn't show too much assertiveness in its international posture, um, and to a certain extent was willing to make compromises on important issues in order to continue to advance its power position. Um, And if you then look through what Xi Jinping's done since he took office on all of these different dimensions, uh, there's been a real break from all of these. And the last couple of years has seen an acceleration of of some of these dimensions, but, but 
actually what he's been doing over this period of time has been, in one sense, dismantling Deng Xiaoping's legacy and putting in place a very different vision for China, for the party, and a kind of a different conception of what good stewardship of the party's role looks like. He's consolidated power around himself in a way that Deng Xiaoping had, had specifically put in place measures that would have this kind of more consensus committee-based set of uh, decision-making processes, really to, to stop the kind of thing that we saw with, with Mao. We've seen a far greater priority on security and ideological matters. A lot of China's economic policy, uh, in a way that for, for a long time was still guided by a sort of a view that said, in one sense or other, reform and opening is, is the path forward. Economics takes a priority. This is the fundamentals of China's power position. Xi Jinping has not prioritized economics. Um, economics has often been an instrument for ideological and security ends. Uh, and then on the international sphere, we've seen a level of assertiveness that I, I think has just taken people aback particularly over the last uh, 18 months or, or, or so, uh, what we've seen in China's neighborhood, what we've seen in China-US dynamics, what we've seen in Europe, of course, uh, as well. Uh, and you can go down the specific examples of, of where it's been a break, whether it's India, whether it's Australia, a, a number of other cases. We've seen a willingness to kind of take risks, to break from tradition, and, and a form of assertiveness that at points has even verged into something that looks quite uh, aggressive on, on China's part. And we've also seen, I mean, finally, this dismantling of, of even the legacy that we saw from Deng Xiaoping on Hong Kong as well. One country, two systems, um, of course, being that the kind of, in one sense, big compromise that Deng Xiaoping had um, had signed up to and, and established. And we've seen a pretty decisive break from this. So I think we're having to adjust to a very different approach uh, domestically and internationally with, with Xi Jinping that I think people have still taken some time to come to terms with, and I, I think are still coming to terms with. And I, I think the policy adjustments that the rest of the world is is having to wrestle with, um, we're still really in a transition on, in, in that on the moment. And the acceleration of these trends over the last couple of years, um, I think has pushed a number of countries into a deeper revisiting of, of how they have to deal with the phenomenon of uh, Chinese power that we're, we're seeing under Xi Jinping. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I'm tempted to ask also where you attribute this shift, this break. Is it the person? Is it the structure? Is it the timing? Uh, because we continue seeing an over-alliance, rhetorically, I mean, uh, an over-emphasis on continuity, you know. But when you talk to your Chinese counterparts, do you feel that they recognize this shift? Do you feel that this is something that uh, they're willing to acknowledge? Uh, and if yes, uh, where do you think they attribute it, uh, this shift to? I mean, I think what did happen was there was a sense in the late stages of the who, when era that this kind of consensus-based decision-making process had kind of gridlocked the system. Um, you, you didn't get the difficult decisions being being made. You had a kind of a navigation of different interest groups. I think in, in some of these areas, there was a sense that there maybe needed to be some additional boldness. I, I think there was a sense as well on the corruption front in particular, which has completely underpinned uh, Xi Jinping's rule, um, has, has provided the basis for his consolidation of power in the party, that there was a deep and systematic problem. And so in a certain sense, the, the empowering of Xi Jinping in these early stages uh, was something that was seen by some figures in the party as a kind of necessary step. But I think it's gone much further uh, even than most of them had anticipated. And he's caught a lot of people off guard. One of the traditions that was also there was you know, former leaders, other prominent figures didn't get 
punished. Um, I mean, this in the era of Deng Xiaoping, this was something that was familiar from the Mao era. Uh, but another thing where I think there was a sort of effective truce, there was an effective sense that uh, the, the top leaders would be able to conduct themselves to a certain extent as they wished. And they might be gently punished or, or kind of sidelined, but not the sort of thing that we'd, we'd seen in, in the past. And, and Xi Jinping really has, has broken from that as well. So I think if you'd asked a lot of people in, in the party, even kind of senior leaders, um, if they'd known what was coming, Xi Jinping, would they have empowered him with the party secretary position? Very questionable, actually. And it was a lot of the reaction that you had from from figures in the party that one talked to in 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 those early days. Um, but of course, China's power position is different. It's possible to do this in a way that it wasn't a decade ago. It's possible to take these risks and get away with it um, to a certain extent in, in, in a way that wasn't true in the past, domestically and internationally. And I think that's still the debate. I think there are a number of people who may think in the system as well, in some sense or other, some of these moves are, are the right moves. Plenty of people disagree with that as well. But has he moved too quickly? Uh, has he taken these steps, particularly internationally, in a way that's likely to consolidate opposition that you're going to see kind of countervailing coalitions, which China had always sought to avoid before? And I think that's one, going to be one of the big outstanding questions over Xi Jinping's rule. I, I think if there's a critique of him that's likely to come, even from people who are sympathetic to a more assertive approach, it will be those that have said he's taken excessive risks in, in, in this regard and, and should have bided his time a little bit longer. I agree. Far less risk averse by the same time potentially overreaching. Now, let's turn to another major player, the US, where we also saw a break from the past, at least uh, at a leadership level, not so much or more questionably so at a policy level. I mean, Trump's bombastic rhetorical bashing of China might be gone. Uh, but we have a new administration, the Biden administration, that is also intently focused on China against a backdrop where a tougher stance towards Beijing is almost bipartisan. And it's based on the assumption that a growing competition, if not rivalry with China, will serve as the organizing principle for U.S. foreign policy going forward. So six months in the Biden presidency, what do you think is the outlook that is being formed on the other side of the Atlantic vis-a-vis Beijing? Well, it's interesting, actually, that, as, as you say, the organizing principle for, for U.S. foreign policy, that China's occupying this role. And I think that's certainly true. I'd almost go beyond that, though, to say that it's under this president almost becoming more an organizing principle for U.S. grand strategy. There's a huge domestic basis to this as well that we're seeing in a lot of the measures that are being taken on uh, industrial policy, innovation, a whole kind of view about how the Western system, how the US system needs to function to be able to compete effectively with, with China. And that's kind of a, an interesting shift in its own right. I think you had that in more nascent form under the Trump administration. There were certainly figures in Congress and in the administration itself who saw that that was the case. But I think this is now being taken further and kind of almost being pursued with, with a greater level of coherence across the US government uh, under this administration as well. But I I think also, as you say in your question, it is clear now that a lot of the essential tenets of the Trump era China policy did have a bipartisan basis. There are critical areas, whether it's the prioritization of the Indo-Pacific as essentially now the dominant US theater, which also kind of translates into things such as the withdrawal from Afghanistan and kind of reprioritization of the entire orientation of, of, of US foreign policy. Um, but I, I think also this sense that 
economics, security, technology, ideology, a lot of these things are much more intertwined. I think there was an approach in the past that tended to treat these things much more in separate lanes that needed to be dealt with in discrete terms. I I think the sense now, and and again, big area of continuity is this is absolutely the the case for Biden era uh, US-China policy as as well. And we see that in some respects, even intensifying um, on on issues such as supply chains and um, semiconductors and and, and some of these other areas. So I think you do have strong points of continuity. And, and, and it has to be remembered, of course, that a number of the measures that were taken under the previous administration, they emanated from Congress. And we've, we're seeing bills passed through Congress in a way that's almost impossible on anything on a bipartisan basis, um, but is possible when it comes to some critical elements um, of legislation on, on, on China. But I think there's big differences as well. And, and I think the Biden administration had a view that said, there are a number of, we may think the big rethink was necessary. We may think that that, that the kind of reorientation of thinking to to treat these different lanes um, in a more integrated way makes sense. But there are a few areas where we're seeing a very different balance to the approach. And just to highlight a couple, uh, one is there is a view that says one of the biggest flaws of the Trump administration's approach was that China policy was insufficiently attuned to the benefits of being able to build a coalition, that allied interests Um, when it came to China, weren't sufficiently taken into account, and that the US undercut its leverage with the damage that it did to its relationships uh, in Europe and in Asia with key partners and allies. And in some ways, the allied-centric nature of the approach should should really, this should be really at the heart of US-China policy, that the US should build a front with partners on on, on all of these, on on critical areas, on and and maximize its leverage when it comes to economic affairs, uh, but really across the board. Traditionally, this was true in security terms, of course, US treaty allies in Asia occupied a critical part in US uh, strategy vis-a-vis China. But when it comes to economics, technology, some of these other areas, that was just not the case. Uh, But I think the other big shift really is on values. I think this is a, a president who actually believes in the view that this is a struggle between democracies and autocracies, with China as the most capable in the latter category, and that it is kind of a struggle between systems. And that means doing the things that are necessary to ensure that your own system works better, that you you take competition seriously, not by trying to trip up your opponent, but by trying to run faster yourself. And that's a huge component of the domestic dimension of these things. But it actually means that far more so than was ever true with President Trump, who clearly didn't care about Xinjiang or Hong Kong or any of these things, you have a president who is attached to the values-based dimensions of, of those issues as well. And in some respects, that's even more uncomfortable for China than when they had a, a president who they knew was largely indifferent to these things and was far keener to strike a bilateral trade deal. I don't think the Biden administration is fundamentally interested in striking some kind of big deal in the way that the Trump administration was. A lot of the leverage the Trump administration tried to uh, build up through its use of tariffs and other measures was really quite a traditional agenda. It was still about access for for US companies to the Chinese market, about structural reform. I I don't think the Biden administration people actually believe that this is going to happen or that it's worth even trying to do that. And I think that's another shift um, that we're we're, we're seeing with this administration. I think there's kind of a giving up almost on on the view that you can really change China in that regard. I think the sense is rather that a lot of China policy is not about China at all. It's about how you adapt domestically and how your partner and allies adapt to take into account the kind of China that we were talking about initially under Xi Jinping's leadership, which just looks fundamentally different and poses a very different set of questions and is not something that we're likely to be able to affect in a fundamental way. Many thanks. I'd be tempted to ask you now whether you think that message of reluctance 
or rather a willingness to recognize that change through engagement vis-a-vis -vis China is not a very productive policy has resonated in many European capitals. But we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, let's pause for a second and focus on the transatlantic dimension. You spoke of allies. I was wondering if you could share um, with us your thoughts, your impression of the summitry that took place uh, earlier. Uh, it was President Biden's uh, first trip to Europe. We had the trifecta summits that ensued, but we also, as you rightly pointed out, we also saw the systematic effort on the part of the Americans to act in a much more consultative way with their European counterparts, at least compared to the Trump era. But nonetheless, there was a sustained focus uh, on China, even in the framework of NATO. So how would you assess the degree of alignment between the two sides? And also, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how you think alignments or divergence between the two transatlantic partners can impact in the coming months and years the formation of a truly joint policy towards Beijing. Well, I think the question you almost asked does actually feature here as well, because because I think that is one of the areas in, in which there is actually still a lack of alignment. But I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, I, I think exactly as you formulated, the approach with allies at the moment uh, is substantially more consultative. This this was the critique on the Trump administration, not, not only that one was being beaten up on 232 tariffs or all of these sorts of things or rhetorically or, or, or everything that was going on, uh, the lack of sense of willingness to even to persist with certain security commitments, uh, but, but also that you were having a China policy that was being drawn up on the US side and then you were asking others to kind of get in line behind it. I mean, you had plenty of exchanges transatlantically in, in, in the last few years on, on some of these issues. What you didn't have was a sense of trying to co-devise an approach that could kind of work among at least sort of advanced industrial democracies as a whole, even though the issues at stake are quite common to, uh, to all of us. Um, and in a certain sense, I mean, if you want to impose, for instance, export control restrictions as the United States, but your European partners don't have them, then you, you, you have an ineffective policy. And I think you've seen over the last period of time a sense that actually uh, on, on the US side, there is a different level of awareness of how important Europe is going to be in a contest with China that puts economics, technology, and some of these other dimensions much more at the fore. This is not a traditional security partner-centric approach. Economics has a security dimension to it as well, but it, it means that the European allies and, and, and partners uh, occupy a much more important role. And we, we saw that then in, in the summits, but also in the lead up to the, the summits. We, we, we had the, the new China dialogue mechanism that's that's been put in place, Deputy Secretary of State, Stefan uh, Sonino, and, and we we have as well a number of other consultation processes and things that kind of fed into the, the summit. And if you talk to anyone who was involved in these things, it's a very different spirit to, to these sorts of exchanges now on, on, on China. And part of it is just this approach that says we have a degree of adaptability about this. We're in the process of crafting the new framework for our China policy that needs to stick and needs to be something that can get the partners and allies on board. So what does a commonly devised policy on some of these areas actually look like? Now, in some respects, that's put Europe in a difficult spot 
in some respects, it was easy to say no to the Trump administration. It was easy to do this differentiation, and some of it was for genuine reasons. Um, but I think there is also a concern, and you've seen it expressed by Chancellor Merkel and President Macron, that says alignment itself at a certain level is a problem. You want some degree of distinction. The problem on this is, are you distinguishing for your, for, for, are you doing distinction for its own sake, or because you genuinely have differences with, with the US in some of these areas? Now, on China's part, the messages that come from the Chinese side are, okay, you may call us a systemic rival now, and you may have all of these new instruments that you're putting in place um, on the European side to, to make life harder for us. But look, we can live with a lot of that as long as you don't team up with the Americans too much. And so I think there is also a certain sense of, for reasons of the relationship with China, for reasons that may relate to a particular vision of strategic autonomy, that Europe just has to be differentiated. And that's the kind of language and message that's coming was coming out from, from Merkel and Macron, particularly in the early stages of this year, that block politics is dangerous and, and, and all of these sorts of things. But then practically speaking, when you have a US administration that comes along and says, we're open to adapting around your language, some of your priorities as well. We have common interests here. Let's, in kind of quite micro working level terms, just work out ways that we can forge a common agenda. And hey, if you decide you're going to sanction some individuals in China vis-a-vis -vis Xinjiang, we'll just mirror those sanctions as well. And we'll show that we can put on a united front on these things. It's just actually become quite difficult to explain what this differentiation actually amounts to on, on the European side. Now, this isn't to say, and, and, and in some respects, we saw that in the summit. We had good language, strong language agreed at the G7. Um, and at the EU-US summit, uh, we'd progress again on areas that Europe proposed, uh, the Trade and Technology Council um, in particular, which I think is going to be a real locus point for the China conversation, probably even more so than some of the, the China dialogues themselves, a view that says um, Europe and the US need to be looking at future regulation um, in certain critical sectors together, need to make progress on a number of issues that have been blocked up on the transatlantic side uh, to be able to kind of unleash each other collectively and, and build scale and, and all of these sorts of things. And a lot of the China policy questions are not fundamentally about China at all. They are about leveraging common strengths and, and, and things like that. And so we actually saw a lot of that moving forward. Language is a bit harder to agree at the NATO summit, but I think you've at least seen some degree of consensus on the European side that says, okay, this is going to be a new part of the transatlantic security bargain, and we have to accommodate US preferences on, on that at least somewhat, at least deal with the issue in NATO in a way that we might have been a little reluctant to. Um, and so we're starting to see, I think, progress more so than one might have expected if one listened to the speeches of the leaders in Munich earlier this year, where you just seem to hear still a lot of caution, because practically speaking, it's hard to say no in these sorts of contexts. There are differences, though, and this goes back to the question that you tentatively asking um, as well, which is, I think you haven't seen the same level of philosophical shift on China in Europe as you have in the United States, when it, particularly when it comes to some of these economic questions. I think there's still a sense that there is an agenda with China that can be dealt with through market mechanisms, legal instruments, bilateral treaties, and I think the sense on the US side is just much more skeptical about that. Now, some of that reflects a deeper tradition when it comes to European multilateralism, European approaches to international law, all of these things. But it also reflects at the moment as well an assessment gap on the European and US side. I think the European side has been slower to adapt to the new China that we're seeing under Xi Jinping. Um, I, I think there's still a view that says, you know, the comprehensive agreement on investment, um, bilateral deals of that sort that could be struck, 
or even aspects of how you can deal with China through the WTO, um, and, and even some of the new legal instruments that the EU is putting in place will kind of get us where we want to go on this. And I think on the US side, there's a view that says we're, we're dealing now, it's not true under the Trump administration, but there was still an attempt to kind of push for structural economic reform, push for a bilateral deal. By administration, I think there's been a deeper reflection and it says the China that we're now seeing is not one where these instruments and methods are going to get us where we need to go. Um, we need to revisit that more fundamentally. And I think that's, there's a question on whether Europe adjusts as well, or whether you do have a bit of a gap opening up. And it translates quite practically into uh, areas such as, you know, how the two sides approach the WTO, how the two sides approach certain areas of plurilateral cooperation. There, there are some of these things where it will be dispositive if these differences um, exist. And I think that's the thing that I'll be certainly watching for in the next six months as this moves from the kind of summit level into the much more operational level questions about whether some of these still existing philosophical gaps in the approach to China um, do preclude certain forms of being able to work together. But I think this is also a matter of time. And I, I, I think in the end, I mean, if you sit down and you read the reports from the BDI or the European Chamber, I think you're seeing from business at least, if not from the political classes in Europe, much more attunement to the fact that, you know, we're in a different zone in China now. There's a different agenda domestically um, with the kind of new proposals that we've also seen that on dual circulation, this kind of new term of art that we've we've, we've heard from Xi Jinping. That's basically going to be a much more kind of radical view of self-reliance on China's part, a much more radical view of building dependency and weaponizing dependency. And I think there's just going to have to be more adjustment on the European side to take that all into account. Right. Thanks. That was uh, very comprehensive. I'd like to underline that you think that there are nuanced but important differences that persist. And perhaps the European approach is not nearly as dogmatic or monolithic or securitized, if you want, compared to the US approach. But a quick follow up on this. Do you think that there is a transatlantic bargain that is being formed where the Americans will say, okay, we're patient, you know, we want to follow your language, but eventually we have to see eye to eye when it comes to China? I mean, I, I think you've got a couple of dimensions to this. One is you have countries that I mean, this, this is why the NATO context is interesting for this. And this is in one way why the US raising this in NATO so persistently has been important, because it's not necessarily that NATO is the best vehicle to deal with China and a lot of the questions that are at stake with that. A lot more of it actually is probably on an EU or national level basis if, if, if people are being honest about it. Um, but at the same time, a lot of it is signaling to certain countries that this is now perceived to be the primary US security and strategic concern. Concern, and there needs to be some willingness for uh, to, to, to adapt to the fact that your security guarantor, your most important security partner, is saying that this should be a priority and, a, and, and that you should be able to work together on this in a different way. And I think there are some countries who are just ready to do that out of that principle. I, I think that is a dimension for certain countries that, that says this is part of a bargain that relates to the US security commitments in Europe as well. And I think that's what's signaled in a NATO context. Now, this is a different uh, question. Where does the US ultimately really need Europe to move? Where, where do the two sides really need to agree in order for a kind of transatlantic cooperation on this to be something that, that really makes a qualitative difference? And these tend to be areas where 
the European interests and the US interests uh, have a fair degree of alignment anyway. And this is much less on the classic security side. This is much less about things like, um, yes, you know, there may be some more uh, European naval presence in the South China Sea and things like that, which is kind of fine in symbolic terms and signaling terms and things. But I think the important areas, and again, the reason Europe matters um, to the US and all of this is around economics and technology. And those are the areas where a lot of those interests look quite similar um, when it comes to Chinese non-market practices and how to respond to them. So to take one of the examples, one of the things that came out of the G7 summit, I think there is now a view that says, if you're going to take on China's Belt and Road strategy in a more serious way, then there needs to be a a major consolidation of efforts on the European and and US sides. Um, There really needs to be a level of impetus put behind these kind of connectivity finance efforts. Um, And this is a positive summit. You're you're improving your offer to other countries around the world, but you're doing it for reasons driven by the fact that um, China is creating a very different set of problems for you in third markets. And you can take on Chinese subsidies in third markets. The European Commission has been very creative at coming up with new ways to do that. But you need a positive offer for other countries um, as as well. Again, this can't be simply constructed around kind of um, counteracting Chinese efforts and things. You you need to be able to sell that alternative. Um, And so these are going to be areas where there's just no intrinsic reason why the two sides efforts in this regard can't be complementary, can't be somewhat coordinated, but simply mobilizing on both sides around this will make a big difference to the European interest in democracy in these countries, um, level playing field in these countries. And um, lots of these things can be done in in, in, in parallel too. Um, and and I, I hope now on the European side, we, you know, we're, we're seeing this kind of new global connectivity effort starting to shape up that have been it's so slow to grind into gear, but we're seeing a different level of political commitment to that. Um, and this is the sort of area where if you're on the US side saying, okay, where does it matter that Europe is involved? Well, Europe mobilizing hundreds of billions of dollars of new finance um, in an area like this is far more important than sending another ship to the South China Sea. It's actually far more important in some cases even than sanctioning you know, another list of individuals in, in Xinjiang. The same goes on um, areas such as the technology regulation or data flows or a number of these other areas. I mean, the push on a lot of this is also simply, can you overcome a lot of the old blockages on the transatlantic side um, to be able to leverage the advantages of the two largest uh, economic blocks among the, um, the, the the free market economies of the world, um, build scale, um, consolidate advantages in the technology sector, um, ensure that your regulations um, are somewhat more compatible. And we're seeing, of course, the big developments on the tri- on the US side, whether it comes to antitrust, tech regulation, privacy, some of these things that actually make that much easier than was the case in the past, where whenever Europe tried to regulate on these things, it was treated as some sort of anti-American plot. Um, I think we're seeing more kind of convergence on a view that says that we need to put all of this on a different footing. And, and again, that when it comes to the China question and kind of are you able to build a consolidated approach on the two sides, that's where a lot of the impetus is going to be. And that's they're going to be difficult for other reasons, but not because the two sides necessarily disagree on, on China. But that's where the US will care about actually building a common front where it really matters, um, even if you're not spending your time with China in the forefront of all of those things. Thank you, Andrew. That was very insightful, very comprehensive uh, as well. Maybe we can revisit some of these issues in six six months' time. I think there's also a tremendous amount of things that we didn't talk about. Also, to focus more on Europe policy post-Merkel, 
but also to wait for when some of the declaratory aspects that we saw during the trifecta summits translates into actual operational details. Before closing, because we're running really tight with time, I just have one last question, which has to do with the fact that we are uh, now during the summer and we're recording it uh, in July So we thought it might be interesting to ask you uh, for a book recommendation, something light, something informative, something that people can perhaps take to the beach, but still captures uh, some of the key dynamics at play of what we've discussed. So the book I'd actually recommend um, is it's by the former Indian Foreign Secretary Vijay Gokhale, um, who is now being remarkably prolific since he left office. And one of his his books that is, has come out already this year uh, is Tiananmen Square, The Making of a Protest. Uh, he was on the ground in uh, Beijing at the time of Tiananmen. And the book is actually, it's a beautifully written, very short, uh, very impressive kind of distillation of the political history of China in the lead up to the, or played out in Tiananmen in, in 1989, but then kind of catapults forward through recent political history in, in China as well and kind of brings us through to the present day. But I think stitches together a story of Chinese politics that is often not told. China is often treated as quite a different and distinct system where people can't understand the personalities and the stories and the raw politics that's in play there. And he does a really fantastic job of making sense of all of that. Uh, again, not just in the, the the period of the 80s and before, but really kind of pulling that through to his experiences in the present day. And uh, as I say, it's short, it's, it's extremely well written. It's it's almost, it's a very compelling book to, to, to read. Um, and I'd actually like to see a lot more China writing that that, that looks uh, like like this. So I'd, I'd, I'd strongly recommend that one. Many thanks, Andrew. Uh, I also want to thank you for being with us. I'm afraid our time is up. So many thanks indeed. Sure, delighted to join you again today. This was FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. Uh, you can find the series on all podcast platforms and please do make sure you subscribe. Finally, as I always do, I will leave you with a quote. This time, it's a Chinese proverb that might or might not bear relevance to the fact that the Chinese Communist Party just celebrated the 100th anniversary since its founding. The quote goes, If you plan for one year, plant rice. If you plan for 10 years, plant trees. If you plan for 100 years, educate mankind. Thank you all for listening. Have an excellent afternoon. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.